Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, let's go ahead and get started today. Welcome uh, to our current installment. At this point, I'm even losing track of the numbers. Uh, not really, it's actually week 10. So well done. We're hitting double digits. We got a couple more. We're going to finish strong here in our What is the Church class. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into what we're talking about this evening. Father God, we are grateful. I'm grateful um, for, for your church and to make me a part of it. I'm grateful for the way in which you have worked through um, this body and other bodies that are part of your larger body to, to grow me up into uh, who I am and, and uh, continue to push me along this process of becoming who I am made to be. And I pray that I and others can serve one another in such a way. And in this particular semester, as we head towards the finish line, as we kind of round the final curve of the track and we can see the end, that you would continue working in our lives and helping us to understand the right things and learn the right things and ultimately live in such a way that we're playing our part in this, uh, in this thing called church. So thanks for tonight. Uh, we pray that you will bless our evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it is good to be back with you. I hope you enjoyed last week. Uh, Jim Dalrymple, who is a professor at Ozark Christian College and also uh, one of the primary guys that runs a lot of our on-campus events, a former lead pastor at a church in Illinois, was here and uh, taught on witnessing. And I got to take a look at the notes and, and got a little report from him and from some of you. And from what I understand, it was, it was good. It was a good time of teaching. I'm not surprised. I think the world to him. So I was grateful to him uh, for giving me a week off and grateful to you for continuing to show up and learn. And it's good to be back. I'm excited for this final stretch of things. As I sat down uh, in preparation for this one, I kind of had something of a blank sheet in front of me. I've kind of learned all, you know, I had had disciplined myself to not try to decide what we were going to say in this last portion because I want to make sure I learned enough on my own study as we walk through the early parts of this so that it was coming out of that. And I'm excited to share uh, what I want to talk about tonight. Before I forget, uh, on the way in, you were given one of these. This is a uh, serving opportunity sign up. Um, On one side, what you have is an About Me page, which tells us some things about yourself, social security number, deepest fear, those sorts of things. And uh, so that is this, and on the other side are some various opportunities where you could serve here at Christ Church. Uh, We put this in your hands as our kind of ongoing attempt to make those opportunities available for you. Um, if you if you have not signed up for something and you don't intend to, please do not hear this as any sort of a guilt trip or manipulation tactic. That is not our heart. If this is not the season where you have the time or are, are yet interested in jumping in in a certain way, you just keep following Jesus and listening to him. So we're not trying to guilt trip anybody. I so appreciate the heart uh, of Sue Crisson, our minister on staff here who oversees connecting people to various ministries. She, wants to be, she always is very careful to, to allow the Spirit to draw you towards things. But we're putting these in your hands in case the Spirit wants to use that to draw you or in case you're ready and want to tell us what's going on. So um, be mindful of this. You can fill this out uh, at any point this evening. And I'll probably mention it one more time at the end. And afterwards, Sue Crisson uh, will be around if you want to talk to her I have a conversation about possibly getting involved in some different ways. So that is uh, for that. I want to begin today by, um, by having you guys do some thinking on your own. Here's my first question. And I'm going to have you write and reflect on it a little bit and then we'll talk together in small groups for just a couple of minutes. I'll tell you the question. Let me tell you kind of make sure you know what I mean by it and then I'll set you loose. The question is, when does the church look most like the church? 
And what I mean is, you know, Michael Jordan looks most like Michael Jordan when he's dunking a basketball. I know he's like old and, you know, kind of fat now and everything and slow, but he's still Michael Jordan. And we picture him flying through the air, tongue sticking out, you know. Um, President Obama looks most like President Obama when he's wearing a navy blue suit. You know what I mean? Like you see a person and they're in their element and you think, yeah, that's them. I'm asking, you know, when is the church most look like the church? Not a right or wrong answer per se, but I want us to get thinking by you to just ask yourself, what do I think? So take a couple moments, write a few words down there at the top of your note sheet in answer to that question, when do you think the church looks most like the church? Whether you've written something down or thought of something in your head, I'd like to encourage you to get together in groups of uh, at least three or four people. If you have to move around a little bit, hopefully by this point in the semester, you won't be mad at me for asking you to do so. So get into somewhat small groups, just a handful of people, three to five-ish in that range, and uh, share your answers with one another. And then I'll be eager to hear some of what we came up with. And then we're going to discuss some other things in these groups as well. So find some other people around you. uh, Share what you thought of when you thought of this question. When does the church look most like the church?
Okay, let me interrupt your conversations for just a moment. Uh, let me hear some of the answers, if you would. Won't you share with me? You can share with me what you said, or you can share what one of your neighbors said. If they're too shy to say it themselves. So tell me, what are some of your reflections on... Um, so many people are getting pointed to, and I don't think they know it. Um, what are some of your answers to this question? When does the church look most like the church? To me, church is more, or most like the church. But I was trying to explain. I'll try to make it as fast as I can here for you. Okay. Uh, when you pray and when there is communion, mm-hmm. everybody is doing the exact same thing. Mm. So, to me, that's when church is more whole. That's yeah. Nice. But that's. I like that. So at communion time, we're all together doing the same thing, which is as focused on Jesus as you can possibly be. Nice. Good. Okay. What are some others? When do you think the church looks most like the church? When they're reaching out to meet the spiritual and physical needs of those in need. Okay. When they're reaching out to meet the spiritual and physical needs of those in need. Good. Okay. I like that. Right, that, right off the top, like honestly, I thought maybe it would take a handful of answers to get the, exactly what, and I want to keep talking a little bit, but this is what I thought we'd see, that on the one hand, we think church gathered together. On the other hand, we think church scattered out into the world. Let's keep talking some more. When, when did you say, yeah? Okay, so when they look at us and don't see the church, so to speak, so much as the truth and grace of God, that's when we look like who we are. I like that. Good. What are some others? Yes. Loving lost, downtrod, hurting, and everyone around them in Jesus' name. Excellent. Good. Makes me think of some verses in John. Uh, all of these do where you know, they'll know us by our love kind of thing. Good. What else? Andy. Teaching, receiving truth. What's the last thing you said? Showing unity. Good. I like this. Good. So when we think about, uh, you know, when the church looks most like the church, there's a lot of right answers, I think, to this. Uh, As we've learned throughout the semester, if there was only one thing that we needed to say about the church to say what needed to be said about the church, this would have been a much shorter class. And we've been able to profitably, I hope, speak about the church for a couple of months now because there's a lot that can be said. And I asked that question tonight because I want to get us thinking about that and specifically this, I don't want to call it attention, at times it is attention, but this relationship between the church gathered and scattered. That's kind of the theme of tonight. The church gathered together and scattered. The church in here as one, the church out there as many. And as we reflect on this, one more thing by way of introduction. I want you to watch a short video uh, that's just a couple minutes long, and then I'll give you some questions to discuss this uh, there among your groups that we've established tonight. How many of you have heard the word missional before? Missional, most of you, okay, some of you, and about half probably. It's kind of a buzzword in certain church circles. People are just talking about how we need to be a missional church, we need to go missional, these kind of things. How many of you, if you've heard that word, have thought to yourself, I wonder what that means? Some of the nods, those kind of things. Well, here's what I want you to do next. We're going to show a two-minute video that's designed to be a simple presentation of what some people are calling the missional church. And then we're going to discuss this and then jump into some of the questions that this raises. So this is a a quick two minutes on this thing called the Missional Church. This is the Missional Church. Simple. In the past, churches have spent large amounts of resources to construct the most attractive places imaginable for the community in which they were situated. Great music compelling teaching, and a host of programs designed to gather people together were the staple of such church communities. Anyone who wanted to come was welcome, and church members were encouraged to invite their friends and neighbors. 
Generally, people had a pleasant experience. The people who came and were cared for seemed relatively similar. Education, income, pastimes, race, struggles, and histories seemed to be almost identical. Eventually, someone asked the question, What about all the people who aren't like us, but who live around us? Why aren't they here too? In response, the church increased its marketing budget, direct mailing the community, taking out ads in local papers, buying radio time, releasing a fresh web page, and offering to host the world's greatest event. The church was determined to be the center of everything great that happened in the community. Church members began to rely on the church to do the work of conveying God's story in the world. If someone could be brought to an event, they could hear about Jesus from a professional teacher. Inviting people became synonymous with evangelism. The missional church, on the other hand, empowers its members to be the church in the community. The church trains, resources, encourages, and challenges its people to live out the good news in their community with those who would otherwise be suspicious of a church and its marketing efforts. The church sends out its members to live among people unfamiliar with church customs, songs, and what it holds sacred, just like a foreign missionary. The missional church recognizes then that every believer embodies the life of the church in their neighborhood, in their school, or at their place of work each one of them telling God's story in the context of compassionate and genuine relationships. All right, so here's what I want you to do. Quick little two-minute video on the missional church with some nice little drawings there. And now I want you to get into those groups that you were just discussing. And here's simple questions I want you to reflect on together. What about this video makes you not in agreement is the first question. So at what point were you saying, yeah, I resonate with what they're saying, that seems to be accurate as a description, or I've always kind of wondered about that, or in any way, what makes you not in agreement? And then also after that, I want you to, after a couple minutes, turn to the question, what about this video makes you skeptically raise your eyebrow? So you're going, I'm not quite so sure if I buy it, or I'm not quite so sure if I see it that way, or if I think the same thing that the video is saying. So talk in your small groups for just a couple of moments um, about this video, and then I'll reconvene, and then I'll start to walk through the content of what I want to share with you this evening.
All right, if you haven't moved on to that second question, go ahead and do so. Make sure you give a minute or two to that one. What about this makes you go, I'm not quite so sure about that. All right, I hate to interrupt, but I'm going to go ahead and grab your attention. Whether you love it, hate it, or are fairly indifferent, now that we're all thinking about these things, let's jump in and talk about what I want to talk about today. And to do so, let me, as we say, back up and get a little bit of a running start at this. Um, I suggested to you early on this semester that we're going to be following a formula uh, throughout this semester that's very simple. The church is, the church does what it is, the church organizes what it does. So first we ask, who are we? What is this thing called the church? Then we say, what are the primary things that we do? Our core practices, if you will. And then how are we going to organize the doing of these things so that we are a coordinated community? That's what we're now presently talking about. We answered the who are we question. We are a community of disciples rooted in the gospel and oriented to mission. That's who we are. We're a group of people. We're a gathering of people, a community, not just a collection of individuals, but a community of disciples, people who have apprenticed ourselves to Jesus and are becoming like him, and we are rooted in the gospel of God's grace. Salvation comes to us by grace, through faith, and we are oriented to mission. We're not just hanging out for our own good, but we're actually trying to be a part of what God is doing in the world. That was our who are we question, and each of those elements are critical to a proper understanding of the church. And then from this, we very basically laid out our three core practices, Everything we do falls under one or two of these core practices, which is to worship God, there's the Godward dimension, to build one another up, there's the us-to-each-other dimension, and then to witness in the world, to engage in mission in the world, there's the outward dimension. So those are the primary things we do. We worship, we build each other up, we witness. And now here's our final question, it's going to take us three weeks to answer. Well, how do we organize what we do? And I want to begin the, uh, the bulk of this by giving you a brief history of this idea of the church gathered and scattered. So what is the relationship between the church whenever she's gathered and how should she gather and how much should that be the centerpiece of her life? And then what's, the, what's up with this whole idea of how do we be the church as we scatter out from this place? And um, I'm uh, always a little leery of, of doing history because I know not everybody loves it as much as I do, and I'm by no means a, uh, like a pope or a president or anything, but this is kind of my version of a state of the church address. Not an address so much as a state of the church reflection. This is where I think we are. So I'm going to back up a little bit and talk about where we've come from, and then I want to look at how I see the church responding. I'm, I'm a fairly young person, but I've been uh, doing ministry full-time now for a while, and I've been able to do so in some different regions of our country and to have conversations with people doing it in multiple other places 
I've read a lot, probably too much on some of these things. And so I feel like I've got not a great, but a decent grasp on what's happening. I want to share it with you. And I figure at the end of the day, you guys made it all the way through. I mean, you're very well through a semester long class that hasn't exactly been, you know, super light information. So you can handle a little history. Of course, there's the famous statement that nobody really knows where it comes from, but it actually comes from a guy named George Santayana, the ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. I think it's true. We often will say this, but most of us don't then go study the history. So let me share a little bit with you. Martin Luther said something similar, that history is the story of a man uh, falling off a horse on one side, then he gets back up on the horse only to fall off on the other. And if we could know something of where our ancestors in recent generations have been, if we could know something about the type of things that you have experienced in your life in the church, I think we could be very, fairly well positioned to be faithful into the future. So we're going to ask a couple of questions is how we're going to approach this. And the first question I want to ask is, where were we? And what I mean by this is, where were we approximately 50, 60 years ago as the church in America? And then I want to look at what's happened, then I want to look at how we've responded, and then where we go from here. So where were we? Put simply, 50, 60 years ago here in America, the church enjoyed a position of privilege in society at large. We we were fairly well thought of, the church. Generally speaking, not everybody went to church, but part of living a, a decent life, part of living a normal American life was to just go to church. Even if you weren't really fully devoted to the Lord, going to church was a part of things. And even if you didn't go to church, there was typically some level of respect for the church. The church is what provides the moral backbone of, of our society. The church is, is kind of a part of this whole vision of the American dream of living a good life. And especially if people wanted to grow spiritually, if people wanted to grow morally, they'd go to church. It was just sort of the way in which you do these things. Some of you lived in an era like that. And again, I'm not trying to idealize the past. I'm not trying to act like everybody loved Jesus. But generally speaking, the church enjoyed a fairly privileged position in society. Matter of fact, a lot of church experts will talk about um, different categories of people in relationship to church. And one of the categories that's fairly common is de-churched. The fact that we have a category called de-churched tells you that in the past, a lot of people went to church who aren't necessarily going to church anymore. So we're thinking about this, this previous you know, era, especially coming out of World War II, where all of the churches were booming, all the denominations were strong, and things were looking good for the church here in our country. Then some things happened. What happened? Well, in short, the world changed. It changed in some fairly significant ways. And there are multiple ways in which it changed that we're not going to even try to cover. And even some of those I'm going to cover, I'm going to talk about fairly briefly. But here are some significant cultural shifts in the last 20 to 50 years that have had an impact on the way most people, the average person in our world, certainly the average secular person in our world, views the church. I forgot to put this in print, so let me be sure and mention it. Most of the categories that I got in this particular section come from a church called, a book called, I think it's called Church Morph by Eddie Gibbs. He calls them megatrends. So big trends that have taken place in the last couple generations. Here are some of them that we ought to be aware of. The first one is that we've moved from Christendom to what sometimes is called post-Christendom. What do those words mean? Christendom is a word that typically is used to describe the, 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 the fairly friendly relationship between church and state coming out of Middle Age Europe. 
So you have this, and in Europe it was an official relationship. In America, we worked very hard for it not to be, there was no official state church. But it's this idea that the church and the world, the church and the government kind of are supposed to work together. Sometimes it's called Constantinian to post-Constantinian because you remember the first 300 years or so of the life of the church. The church was sometimes illegal, oftentimes directly persecuted, certainly not well respected. And then in the year 312, the emperor Constantine becomes a Christian. He legalizes Christianity the next year. And then a couple generations later, it's not only legal, it is the official religion of the Roman Empire. That started a long portion of human history, particularly Western European history, where the church and the government worked hand in hand. We're no longer in that world. What that means is this place of privilege that our fathers and grandfathers knew, pretty, pretty much gone. It's not necessarily true that normal, decent people go to church anymore. It's not necessarily true that the average person looks to the church to provide the moral backbone of society. And it's not even true anymore that if a person wanted to be spiritual or grow as a human, the church probably actually wouldn't be the first place they would go. They might just as likely go to a yoga class as a Bible study. And that says something about the way in which our culture has changed. Another way of thinking about this is 50 years ago, if a young man said, I want to be a pastor, most everybody in the community would say, hey, that's a good thing. You go for that. Even sometimes non-believers would say, pat you on the back. Man, yeah, like you're doing good for society. Now, sometimes young men say, I want to be a pastor. And their own parents who may be Christians are looking at them going, I don't, maybe some of us would say, I don't know if I, I mean, like I am in ministry. And I think if my son said that, first of all, I'd say, awesome. Great, do it. But there's a part of me that would go, man, you could pick an easier route. You know what I mean? It's just not as widely respected as it used to be. A lot of the world looks at those in ministry and says, you're fairly useless at best. So we're living in a different world in the relationship of the church to the society as a whole. Let me give some other changes that have impacted this. We've moved from modernity to post-modernity. Those are words that are fairly difficult to define. So let me give you some specific examples. We've moved from faith in human reason to doubt. In the past, coming out of the Enlightenment, there was this strong belief that if we apply our minds through technology and evolution, then we'll come up with ways of solving the problems of the world. And it's true that technology and human reason gave us some pretty important things, modern medicine being one of them. But it also gave us the atomic bomb, and we saw how that went. And so at some level, there's been a loss of faith in our own ability to just figure things out, and it's been replaced by a certain doubt. Maybe we'll never be able to figure it out. There's been corresponding to this, this is your next line, we've moved from this confidence that society is going to be stable to this anxiety about the world and our place in it. Gosh, I didn't even look up the statistics, but go look up the statistics on the rise in sales of anxiety medication over the last few decades. It's astronomical. More and more people struggle with anxiety. I'd imagine if we sat down in a smaller setting, you and I could talk about ways in which we, most of us, have gone through seasons of our life in which we were just anxious. Because we we didn't have like a stable place in the world. Our tradition didn't tell us what to do next. Our family maybe didn't tell us what to do next. And we felt like the rug got pulled out from under us and we didn't know what to do next. Another way of looking at this is that we've moved from hope in progress to despair about what comes next. And the result of this is not always that people are sad and depressed, though that's part of it. 
The result of this is that our mindset is no longer, hey, let's build a better world as much as it is, much of the time, let's just make it through today. I don't know what the future holds, but I know I got now. So let's live in the moment. I mean, how many times have you seen posters that, you know, the, 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 at Walmart, they live in the moment, those kind of things. Those are slogans that define our era. So in these different ways, we've moved from a world that was confident and progressing and we're going to get to a new place, we're going to build a perfect society to a world in which we say, yeah, their hopes and dreams were probably a bit dramatized, a bit exaggerated, and the best we can do is try to take care of my own and make it through the day. You know what I mean? Some other changes that have taken place is that we've moved from the industrial age to the information age. The industrial age spawned big businesses where you had an elite group at the top governing a a hierarchy of leaders and you all sort of worked together to accomplish whatever product needed to be produced or whatever task needed to be taken care of. The church reflected this. I'm talking about an era in which we saw some of our very first megachurches, churches that grow and have these elite leaders at the top that are overseeing the process. There's kind of a hierarchical system to this and we're standing over it leading well. Now, in the world of business, a successful company may just as, much, just as likely be started by a 17-year-old sitting on their, in their dorm room on a computer as it is by a graduate of a business school with a master's degree in business leadership. It's just the world's been kind of turned upside down in that sense. And no longer can a certain people at the top say, we've got the information, you need to come to us. Why? Wikipedia? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you can know pretty much, there's no Encyclopedia Britannica anymore, it's Wikipedia. And anybody can get on there and add and edit, and then the community itself will govern these things. Knowledge is shared. Things are different. And think about how strange it sounds now in this culture for a secular person that hasn't grown up with faith, a person who's been trained to think about truth by the internet, to come to a place like this, sit in a room like this, in rows with other people, all looking to one person to stand up here and preach the truth. That's just strange. That's just odd to most people in our world. This is why sometimes when your friends find out that you go to church, they look at you and say, really? I didn't know you were that dumb. You go sit and listen to one person tell you how to live? Because we've moved to a different era. A couple more of these pretty quickly. We've gone from producers to consumers. I think I can show you a picture that grabs this one. Here's what I mean by this. Take a look at these pictures. The picture uh, that you're seeing is an assembly line of, uh, of a Ford factory. Henry Ford, in many ways, created the assembly line. And this is kind of an image of a production-oriented society. It is about playing your part to make something good, to build something, to to send something out into the world. This is a picture of our grandparents and great-grandparents in terms of the way in which they approach life and work and such things. This next picture, by contrast, tells you all you need to know about our day. This is a shampoo aisle. We have moved from being a production-oriented people, what can I produce and send out into the world, to a consumer-oriented people. What do I want today? And so we can go to a place like Walmart or a salon or wherever this is, and we have a whole row of products for how we would prefer to take care of our dead cells. You know what I mean? So this says something about the world in which we live. We live in a world where no longer is the question, let's get together and make something into the world. Rather, it is for many people, what can I get out of this? And the last thing that we probably ought to be mindful of is that we've moved from religious identity to spiritual exploration. Denominations are dying because younger generations do not care. They don't care. We don't care about whether or not you're Presbyterian or Baptist or non-denominational. We're just wanting to follow Jesus. 
that wouldn't have been said 30, 40, 50 years ago in many denominations, even in our own. It was about the denominational identity. So denominations, probably on their way out. This is why you also have uh, the type of mentality that says, I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm a person that wants to be interested in the things of God, but I certainly don't want to identify with any organized religion. How many of you, let's be honest, how many of us would say, organized religion makes me somewhat uncomfortable? Yeah, some of us would say that because we've seen its abuses, because we've recognized some of the problems. And so we are children of this particular world. So that's, I know I flew through that, but the point is I just want to talk about some different ways in which the world has changed. And what I really want to get to is this next section. What's the effect of all this? The effect of all this in terms of how to be the church is that many people just aren't interested in the church. Many people have no interest in the church. The numbers suggest as much, and I know numbers can lie, and whenever people start talking about statistics, I always figure that there may be some truth to what you're saying. It's probably not quite as specific. So let me give you some specific numbers that may need to be tweaked a little bit in either direction, but that are generally speaking true. A lot of the people who study such trends in terms of who goes to church and who doesn't and why will tell you that realistically, about on a good day, 15% of the people in our country attend church. I know a lot more people identify as Christians, but generally speaking, that's the small sliver there in your pie chart. The, uh, is it gray? Is that what color it is? The gray sliver in your pie chart, um, the small one is that's the amount of people who go to church. The next one is, I believe, orange, at least on mine. That's 25% of the people. 15 and 25 make up 40, of course. And what we're discovering, so far as we can tell, is that only about 40% of the people in our society would go to church. The 15 who do, and then 25 more, who if asked by the right person in the right context, would probably say yes. If that's anywhere near the truth, then that means something like 60% of the people in our world just aren't going to church. It doesn't matter how cool we do this thing. It doesn't matter how great the teaching is. It doesn't matter how much they like you. It doesn't matter what kind of tragedies they face. They just won't be going to church anytime soon. How many of you could say, I don't know about 60%, but I have a friend who I know there's nothing I could say or do that would get them to walk into this place. Is that true of any of your friends? Yeah, we all know people who fact is, no matter what happens, they're just not going to go to church. And so this is something that we have to wrestle with. For all sorts of reasons, we find ourselves now in a world where our typical methods of reaching people can still work for some. We still should and could invite people to church, and some of them will say yes, but if this is at all accurate, then a decent portion of our neighbors just aren't going to walk into this place, which means if they're going to hear the gospel, we've got to find some other way to get it to them. We also have what is often referred to as the rise of the nuns. Time Magazine did a study on this not too long ago called The Rise of the Nuns and the Growth of Religious Indifference. And what this refers to is whenever people take surveys of their religious affiliation, we've seen a radical increase in the amount of people who check the box that says none. I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Muslim, I'm none. And so we have the rise of an entire group of people. Typically in the past, even if somebody didn't go to church, they would just say, oh, I mean, I identify as a Christian. 
I remember when I was in high school, my, my uh, high school history teacher, he was one of my favorite teachers I ever had, probably because he wore sandals and socks, which was awesome, and he swore all the time. And when you're 16 and you have a teacher that swears, it's like, whoa, he's really radical, you know? So he was a great teacher of history. And I remember, like, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not trying to make a statement about swearing one way or another. That's another conversation for another day. But I, I knew enough about this guy. He also had a side job at the liquor store. I knew enough about this guy to know that Ranch Eggers widened spirits. I remember the name of the place. My teacher works there okay all right here we are i know enough about him to know like he does not practice discipleship dude's not following jesus on a regular basis but i remember one time when he was talking about different groups of people throughout the world and he was saying you know you live here muslim if you if you live there you're probably muslim if you live here you know i'm a christian i remember thinking whoa you you call yourself that what's fascinating is i bet if he took a survey today he wouldn't he wouldn't because it's just become more socially acceptable to say, I don't have a religious affiliation. So far as the statistics are saying, there's been a jump from 16%. This is about 10 to 12 years ago. 16% of the population said, I have no religious affiliation to now I believe the latest number is 24. That's a lot of people in a short amount of time who are saying, I have no religious affiliation. We've got to be mindful of these realities. And in fact, we have been. This takes us to our next question. How have we responded? So we've recognized something's different about our world and we can't keep doing the same thing that we've always been doing or we're just going to get the same results that we're currently getting, which aren't good. A lot of the denominations are currently dying and so we looked at the situation and said, we have to find a way to respond. And when I think about this, I think about this, uh, you ever hear the story about the family who multiple generations, they'd always get together for Thanksgiving and they would celebrate Thanksgiving by having a turkey. Nothing crazy about that. We typically all do it, right? And I remember one time I heard about this family who was all the generations together and uh, younger sister and older sister are in the kitchen and they're preparing the turkey. It's kind of time. It's their responsibility now. And younger sisters watch an older sister and younger, and what younger sister watches as older sister cuts off a piece of the front cuts off as much as she can on the back, and then puts the turkey in the oven. And she says to her older sister, why do you cut off the front and back before you put it in the oven? And the sister says, I don't know, go ask mom. And so the little girl goes to mom and says, mom, why do we cut the turkey, like the front and back of the turkey, before we put it in the oven? And mom says, I don't know, that's just how we've always done it. Go ask grandma. So she goes to grandma and says, grandma, why whenever older sister's cutting the turkey, does she cut off a part of the front and cut off a part of the back before she puts it into the oven? And grandma says, I don't know, that's just how we've always done it. Go ask great grandma. So the little girl goes to great grandma, sitting over in the rocking chair, looking all cute, bundled up in a sweater, falling asleep. She taps great grandma on the shoulder. Great grandma wakes up and little sister says, grandma, why do we cut off the front of the turkey and the back of the turkey before we put it into the oven? And great grandma just laughs and she says, oh, well, that's because when your great grandfather and I first moved to this country and started celebrating Thanksgiving, we had a tiny little apartment with a tiny little oven. And the only way to fit the thing inside was to cut a portion off the front to cut a portion of the back and it stick the thing in are we still doing that and that's kind of where the church found herself are, are, are we still doing the same things that we've always been doing and is that going to work we live in a world that has changed so let me give you a summary of everything i've said so far where were we we were in a situation where most people thought fondly of the church where are we now we're in a situation where most people don't think fondly of the church if they care at all their opinions probably negative and that's only those who care at all. So how have we responded to this? Let me walk through some different ways in which Christians have responded. Uh, you have the liberal response, which I don't need to talk about much because it's not really alive in our room. But their response was essentially, you know, you've got to play to the market. 
The Bible doesn't speak to the needs and concerns of modern people, and so we need to update the Bible a little bit. We need to keep the Bible keeping up with the times. And so this is churches that essentially say, you know what? Bible's an ancient book, a lot of errors in this thing, so we're not going to not read it, but we're going to recognize that it has its problems. It was written by men a long time ago, so it needs a little work. Essentially, what the liberal church decided to do was to preach a gospel to people that people wanted to hear. And often what that looked like was, you got to be about this cause. Oh, you care about poverty? Well, we care about poverty too. Oh, you care about justice? We care about justice too. And eventually what happens is people look around and go, why are you guys here? Because we cared about justice before you showed up. And this is why the liberal church is dying. This is why denominations like Episcopalians, and I'm not trying to dog anybody, but the more liberal wings of Episcopalians and some Methodists and some Presbyterians, I don't think they have a future. Because I think when you look at the world and say, really, we think what you think, smile, nod, yeah, we're so glad you're here. They're not going to come for very long. Because if all you're saying is what I'm saying, then I'm out. I got better things to do with my time. But that was the liberal church's response to this. We're going to play to the market. The traditional church on the opposite spectrum says, we're going to hold the line. We're going to keep doing what we've always been doing and all will be well. Often in direct response to the liberal churches, they're going to give in to the modern world. They're going to give in to the postmodern world. We're going to keep doing what we've always been doing and that's the way it is. And I like this better than the liberal response because at least they're still preaching the gospel. But you've got a lot of churches filled with really good people and really well-meaning pastors who ultimately are still doing church in a way that isn't necessarily cued from scripture but it's cued from 1940s and 50s america and the fact is it's just not probably going to work so you have the liberal and traditional response in the extremes and i want to mention those because they're there but then a little bit closer to home you have some of these words that were talked about in this video you have the church that is often called attractional. That's the church that says, we're going to sharpen the edges up a little bit. We're going to do church in a way that is more attractive. This is where you have the birth of what's often called the church growth movement. Oh, people aren't interested? Then let's change the packaging. We're not going to mess with the message, but we're going to mess with the format. We're not going to change the gospel, but we're going to change the way we present the gospel. So you have churches like Willow Creek Community Church and outside Chicago and Saddleback Community Church, or Saddleback, yeah, Community Church with Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, that whole thing out in Orange County. You got some really great leaders. These are good godly men. I love Bill Hybels and Rick Warren. Leading churches that look different. The weekend services are casual. We don't have to look fancy anymore. Look, I'm wearing jeans. Look how relevant I am, you know. The music is a little bit more lively and engaging. We've got a full band up here. In the past, remember whenever people would do skits? We don't do skits so much in church, but there was a time that was like, look how good we are at telling stories. We do skits. The teaching is engaging. Like they said in the video, we send out flyers, and the kind of things that you're going to see on flyers are exciting worship, relevant teaching, casual atmosphere, friendly environment. And so what we're doing is we're trying to do what we can to make our gatherings more appealing to the masses. This is where you have many of our megachurches, churches that grow because they say we're still going to preach the truth, but we're going to present it in such a way that appeals to people in our world. In addition to the weekend services, this is where you have the growth of the small group movement. Oh, what you want is relationships? Well, we have a program over here where we gather people around at homes to go off and study the Bible on their own. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm mocking these things because I think that at some level being seeker sensitive is entirely biblical. In Acts chapter 15, the church said, we're not going to put any stumbling block in between people and God that doesn't need to be there. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. 
To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. To the weak, I became weak. I think that we do right by Scripture when we ask ourselves, how would an outsider experience our gathering for worship? And what can we do to make it better, a better place for them to come hear the gospel? One of Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 14 against speaking in tongues with no parameters is that if a non-believer walks into the room and hears this going on, he's going to think you're crazy and he walks out. All of these scriptures indicate that we should be asking of our gatherings, how would our non-Christian neighbors feel and what would they think if they came to be a part of our weekend gatherings? I think that's a good question. So this is that response that they talk about in the video that says, we're going to improve what's going on here. We're going to do a lot of programs for people when they come. So as soon as they walk in the door, we got all kinds of opportunities to help them, to serve them, to do good to them. But you have another group of leaders that often go by the name missional, and their slogan isn't so much, we're going to sharpen the edges, but everything's got to change. We've got to restructure the whole thing. And some of the basic principles of the missional church are we're going to do ministry like Jesus did, incarnationally. Jesus didn't just stand up in heaven and say, here I am, it's great up here, come up here and join me. No, he got down in the dirt, he got down in the ditch, He became one with the people. He became one of the people in order to bring them toward what God had for them. And so the missional church takes their cues from the incarnational model of Jesus and says, we probably ought to do ministry like he did. Not just standing here in our big fancy building on Kafer Road saying, everybody come to us. But instead, like the video said, we're going to go to them. Another principle that is alive in the missional church is you need to approach your culture like a missionary. There's a man named Leslie Newbigin who was a missionary from the Church of England down to India for 40 years. And when he came back to England, he realized it wasn't the same place he left. He left a Christian culture. He went to India to preach the gospel. He came back thinking it was going to be the same and it wasn't a Christian culture anymore. And he really is the father, father of this idea that we should approach all cultures as if we were missionaries. What does that mean? That takes us to our next principles. What that means in part is you find where God is already moving and you jump in. This is a major tagline of the missional church. You look around you and you ask in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, in your community areas, in your recreational centers, where does it seem like God is on the move and how can we jump in stream with what he's already doing? And the critical component is here is, here is that we be the church out in the community that we scatter ourselves, and that we move out into the world in order to accomplish the purposes of God. There are some various expressions of this, and I don't need to go into detail on those, but roughly speaking, what some people have done, and this is kind of what we have done as a church, is say, we're going to create a department of ministry that's devoted to community impact. This is Maggie's job, right? This is our missional impact ministry. We're going to create a department of our ministry that's focused on reaching people in the community and meeting their needs. Other churches, though, have said that's not going far enough. We actually need to restructure the entire way we do church. And in many cases, they would say we need to do away with the buildings. We need to do away with the guy up front wearing a microphone, holding the Bible, teaching from it so that everybody else has to listen. Instead, we should do church in homes like the early ones did. So you have these ideas, sometimes called organic church, sometimes called house church, that it's not about a bunch of people getting together at a building to talk about God. It's about people gathering in homes as they live together on mission. So you have different ways of doing this, but the whole idea is what we're trying to do is reach out into the culture instead of expecting everybody to come to us. So that's kind of an overview of the type of responses that we've seen to this reality that the culture's changed. 
Liberal churches have played to the market and ultimately sold out the gospel. Traditional churches have held the line, and they're still preaching a true gospel, but oftentimes pretty ineffectively because nobody's going to come through the doors. Attractional churches have said, we're going to try to update the weekend experience as well as the weekly church experience so that it appeals to modern people in our world. And missional churches have said, it's not so much about making our gatherings more appealing as it is scattering out into the world and reaching people where they are. And the next and final question is, where do we go from here? This is what it's all been leading to. So if you don't like history, if I've lost you somewhere along the way, come back together to me. And I want to talk now about the idea of the church gathered and scattered. And I want to do so first by talking about the concept of, uh, Jim Collins calls it, embracing the genius of and. This is my tendency towards this conversation anyway. So full disclosure, when I first started engaging some of these ideas, when I first saw that video, my thought was, why can't we both do well? That's kind of my tendency in the first place, is to always ask, can we do it all? And I've been highly influenced in this by a writer named Jim Collins. He has my favorite non-Christian books around, Good to Great, Great by Choice, those kind of things. In one of his books, his very first one called Built to Last, he studied companies that were in the same markets at the same time, and one of them succeeded and the other one failed. He studied 15 different test cases. And so he's comparing the companies who, in the same market, under the same conditions, succeeded against those that failed and asking what are some principles that enabled these people to succeed, whereas these didn't. And the whole book, Built to Last, is about those companies that were built to succeed, those principles that are present in organizations that are great. And one of the chapters that is the shortest chapter in the book, it's three pages long, he calls it, Reject the Tyranny of Or and Embrace the Genius of And. And what he discovered was that companies who are unsuccessful tend to say, we either, are, we, we either have to be about making a profit or doing good in the world. We either have to be about keeping the costs low or having high quality products. And the companies over here that succeeded said, we're not going to choose. We're going to make a profit and do good in the world. We're going to have low cost and high quality. We're going to be a presence in the community as well as a presence globally. And so for me, again, full, self, full disclosure, I approach this conversation with a bent towards saying, why can't we just do both? But the good news is, and I don't think I'm just reading scripture through my own lens, the good news is scripture itself presents the church as both gathered and scattered. If you read through the book of Acts, you will find times when the church scatters out there in the world. And if you read through the book of Acts, you will find times that the church gathers together in here as one. In here publicly and in here in our homes. So if you're reading the book of Acts, which is our only book that describes the life of the early church, what you find is that when, the, when we say, for instance, that the church is at its best when it's taking communion, and when we say that the church is at its best when it's out there serving in the world, Scripture says, yup, it sure is, to both. And so what I want us to be is a church that doesn't feel like we need to choose. A church that isn't afraid of the missional conversation because we want to engage people on their own turf, but at the same time, a church that's going to continue gathering because there's something about this that is entirely biblical, has been practiced for 2,000 years of church history, and probably shouldn't just be thrown out the window because of a couple cultural trends in one century among many. And so let's be a wise church that says we're going to do all of this, which takes us to our next question, how can we do both well? That's what I want to end with tonight, by talking about how we can do both well. 
So let me talk through some of these things. Then we're going to watch one more video. Then I'll take some questions and we'll be done. How can we do these well? First of all, by celebrating both gathering and scattering as both essential and valuable. That we look at the church gathered as essential and valuable. And that we look at the church scattered as essential and valuable. And I use both of those words very intentionally. And I think both are pretty critical. Now, you might look at that and say, well, if it's essential, isn't it also valuable? Maybe, but that doesn't mean it's valued. Doing laundry is relatively essential. But that doesn't mean that we sort of think of it as this super important thing that we do in our homes. You know what I mean? I mean, you got to do it, but it's not like super celebrated. Putting on deodorant is essential. But it's not like, man, I'll tell you what moment in my day that I live for. That moment when I raise up my arms and I click that little stick and I apply. You know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is it is essential, but it's also something that we say, it's essential and we're happy about it being essential. It's essential and we love it because of course we want to be doing this. And this is critical because of where I'm going. And where I'm going is the recognition that some of us are more wired to serve the gathered church and others are more wired to serve the scattered church. And I think that's fine. I think that's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. But I think it's only fine if we all equally value both. In my younger, more immature years, I got into some pretty heated conversations with some really close friends of mine. And we actually had some years of separation in our friendship because we were both a little immature. And we wanted, I mean, I wanted to argue that what I like to do is the better thing. And of course, they want to argue what they like to do is the better thing. And that's what young people do. But let's be careful that we don't continue to act like young people even as we're not. Let's value both as essential. Let's celebrate both as essential and valuable. Uh, secondly, and more practically, we need to discern and fulfill our responsibilities toward both the gathered church and the scattered church. So let's talk about the gathering first. We fully engage the gathering as disciples who make disciples. There are some things that we always do, some non-negotiables. You don't get to choose these, things like worship. We don't get to choose whether or not we participate in, I mean, we can ultimately choose if we participate in worship, but we don't get to say, I'm trying to live a fully devoted life and not participate in worship. It's just a part of what we do. We don't get to choose whether or not we sit under the word in study. Whether when the teaching is happening, we, look, we listen and we say, God, I want you to tell me from your word what you would have me hear. Maybe that's what the preacher's gonna say. Maybe it's something I think about because of what the preacher said, I'm here listening. So we always worship, we always study, we always take communion. I don't think we get to choose. I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that we are most the church when we're gathered around the table. Again, we're also most the church when we're scattered, but I love not just when we're in this room, but when we're taking communion. I believe that theologically that's the centerpiece of everything we do together. We don't get to choose whether or not we pray. We don't get to choose whether or not we give. So those are the always pieces of the gathering, that everybody is responsible to engage. Again, we're discerning and fulfilling our responsibilities towards both. And when it comes to the gathering, that's what we always have to do. There are others that are not on the always list, but they're on the often list. That's where I would put serving in a volunteer ministry. You don't always have to be serving on the weekends. There are seasons of life where you will say, it's just not happening for us right now. Not because we're not living our lives for God, but because we're living all of our lives for God. And that's f it's full. 
Maybe for some of you, it's when your kids are a certain age where you say, right now, it's taking everything we have to make sure that our kids follow Jesus. So what good is it if I try to make sure that other kids follow Jesus if I'm not tending to my own kids following Jesus? I will always celebrate a person saying, I can't serve in a ministry during this season because I'm trying to be very intentional about raising my own family to follow the Lord together. Awesome. Do that. So, but there are times, I think, in all of our lives when we should say, this is a season in which I either have room or I need to make room to serve in a volunteer capacity. Maybe it is over with the kids. Maybe it's as a greeter. Maybe it's handing out coffee. Maybe it's, you know, passing out communion. Maybe it's working the camera or working the table. That's what this sheet is all about. Maybe it's any number of these things. And I want you to look and prayerfully reflect through this so that you can discern where you need to serve when that moment comes. The other piece that I think is in the often but not always category is a small group. I led our small groups ministry for four years at Real Life, the church I was at before. Small groups ministry is, I'm just going to tell you this, I can say this because I'm not currently leading it here. It's a pain in the neck. I pray for the people who lead small groups ministries because it is not an easy thing to do. I did an internship here for two years in small groups when I was a student at Ozark. And my conclusion at the end of that was, well, I never want to do that again. (laughs) And then I went to real life. And of course, I worked, like I said, for four or five years in the small groups ministry. But it was not actually ever hard for me to go to work. Because as hard as it is, it's valuable. And there are seasons, currently my wife Beth and I are in a season where we are not actively participating in a Christchurch small group. In large part because of my involvement here on Wednesdays. If I was here on Wednesdays and we were also doing another night and then we have other groups that we're part of right now with our ministry to the college students and other ones, it would just be, we would be neglecting our own, first of all, our own health, but also our own family, right? So we've recognized that at least this semester, it's it's not going to happen for us. So if you're there, that's fine. That's totally acceptable. But I think it is, if not an often, then at least a sometimes. We should be engaged in doing life together with other Christians on a daily basis. That, for Beth and I, uh, just to be transparent about our situation, is part of why we decided, I don't think we're going to get in one right now, because we're actually already actively doing life together with other believers in our neighborhood and our communities. So if you're not in one, and you're not actively engaged in participating in community with other Jesus followers, then you ought to consider getting in one. No guilt trip, just think about it. So that's our responsibility to the gathered community. We always worship and study and pray and take communion and give. We sometimes serve in a volunteer capacity and we sometimes uh, get into a small group. When it comes to the outward responsibility, essentially what we're talking about is living on mission the other six days. Let me mention a couple things that I want to show you one more video and we'll have a few times for questions. This doesn't, living on mission doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something radically new. It just means often that you're doing the same things in a different way. It doesn't mean that you, that you stop hanging out with a certain group of friends. It just means that you hang out with that group of friends with a certain intentionality. And I know Jim talked about witnessing last week, so I don't need to go back over what he said. But essentially the question I want you to start asking and praying about, if you're not already, is where is God already at work around me and how can I jump in? Truth is, you're not the one who brings God to your neighborhood or your workplace or your school. He's already there. You just got to find traces where he's at work and jump in. How do you know where he's at work? Let me give you a simple, this is a simple acronym, knock, N-O-Q. That's not how you spell knock, but it'll do. So we're going to knock on the door, N-O-Q. Look for a need, look for an opportunity, look for a question. Is there a person in need? Because that may be your open door right there. If there's a person in need and you have the ability to take care of that need, jump in. Not out of manipulation, but out of love. That's what we're here to do, right? Take care of people who are in need. So jump in and do what you can to help. Maybe there's an opportunity. 
Maybe you live in a neighborhood, like we live on a cul-de-sac. That means there's a constant opportunity to throw block parties in a way that is right in front of our house. So we've done this a couple of times, not as much as we'd like to, but we've done this a couple of times where we, not alone, but together with other families in the area, have thrown a block party. I can't stress to you how critical this is as kingdom work to provide opportunities for neighbors to get to know one another. I mean, I'm not going to go knock on my neighbor's door. Hey, I don't know you, but I'd like to get to know you because first of all, I just want to demonstrate love to you. And then ultimately, I also believe that Jesus is the path to life. So maybe it'd be cool if you also believe in him too. That's probably not going to go over so well. So I got to find ways to organically connect with my neighbors, right? So that's what I'm going to do. So look for an opportunity. And then lastly, look for a question. If people find out you go to church, one of the first things they may do is make fun of you. So play along. It's okay. We can have a sense of humor. And one of the second things they may do is ask you a question about God. Because you're going to become the resident theologian. You're going to become the resident expert. And you don't have to always know the answers. But man, be ready when the questions come. Do your best and then keep learning together with them. Last couple blanks on here. When and where possible, do this together. This is not an island sort of thing. You read the book of Acts. Uh, It's always happening in teams. You only find Paul. He's the Apostle Paul. If anybody can do it alone, he can. You only find him alone one time in the book of Acts. He wasn't alone for very long. Acts 17, he's in Athens. And he's only alone for a short amount of time. Do this together. And then lastly, for many of us, this will require schedule surgery. We're going to have to cut some things out in order to make room for ministry. One of the things that's been happening in my home, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of disturbing. My son, Carson... Um, he's two years old. He's the one who hits people. If you heard the sermon on Sunday, um, his latest thing is, uh, if you like, if you want him to do something, Hey Carson, you need to go clean up your room. You know what he says? I too busy for that. And he walks away. (laughs) Hey Carson, we need to change your diaper. I too busy for that. Now I, I promise you, he does not hear us saying that to him about him very often. He probably hears us saying it about other things, but we're not neglecting our children. The fact, though, that he understands that that's a potential response to being asked to do something says something about the type of life we're living. So some of us are going to have to do some scheduled surgery in order to see this happen, and that may be a long-term project. But I think this is, at the end of the day, the path to joy, the path to meaning, the path to not only our joy and meaning, but that of others. Let me show you one more video that I think is fairly helpful in terms of these things made by the same people. This one's not about being a missional church so much as it is about engaging in missional community, being the type of person who becomes a redemptive presence in the circles in which you find yourself. So Brad, are you still back there? Can we cue up that other video? Here we go. This is missional community. Simple. Bob is the owner of the local hobby shop and president of the Remote Control Airplane Club. Each Wednesday after work, the members of the airplane club get together to race, share in the joy of airplanes, compare designs, and to pass on the knowledge of model airplanes to their kids and grandkids. Bob goes to a church service with his sister on Christmas Eve and decides to become a Christian. He regularly attends Sunday services, finds his way into a small group, and joins the Wednesday night church gathering. He realizes that his commitment to church programs and his commitment to the airplane club are at odds. The church leadership empathizes with the situation but tell him it'd be better to attend the Wednesday program rather than spend time building airplanes. The church leadership also encourages Bob to get more involved in the church, leaving no time for airplanes. Bob agrees. Giving up a silly hobby will be his sacrifice for the Lord. Eventually, Bob's friends begin wondering what happened to him. In their minds, he was a critical part of the model airplane community. When they'd wander into his hobby shop, they'd ask, What happened to you? We miss you. Bob begins to realize that he's becoming an outsider to all the conversations, significant or otherwise, that always unfolded during their Wednesdays together. Bob explains that he'd found something more important than model airplanes, and he even offers an invitation to the Wednesday night church meeting. Some of the airplane club try out his church because they respect and love Bob. 
but a lot of them decide not to go because they value the time together with family and friends on Wednesday evenings. After some time, Bob becomes a key leader in the church and hears his call to go and reach those people he knew from the club. Since giving up the regular meeting with the club, his interaction feels more difficult than he'd imagined. After all, Bob, their leader, left them for what seemed to be just another club on Wednesday evenings. Somewhat troubled, Bob decides to take a break from Wednesday night church gatherings and re-enter the world of model airplanes. Some in the church were deeply concerned for Bob's spiritual well-being. Others were disgruntled. Then someone asked the question, What if we resourced Bob to be even more effective at building healthy community where he already is? Let's help him to better live out more of Jesus' heart for compassion, generosity, peace, and love among people that know him best. After all, Bob is the most likely access point for those people to encounter Jesus. The church agrees. Bob's church is now determined to help him follow Jesus and assist him in living out his faith in the community that had been built around him. Bob now sees both his dedication to his church and to the model airplane community as critical components in following Jesus. So there you go. I mean, that's what I'm trying to say right there. It's that simple. Although, are you guys model airplane people? That'd be kind of awesome. Are you really? Awesome. Yeah. So is there a model airplane? If there's a model airplane community, you should tap in. Is there really? So you have, don't come to my Romans class next semester. You can listen to it on the podcast. Go hang out with airplane people. Because at the end of the day, I'm probably not going to get to share the gospel with them. So you are. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm talking about. So here's the last thing on the, th- the, last thing on the line. I do want to leave you with this. I'll hang tight up here if you have questions. It's time for me to dismiss. So let me say this and I'll let you go. Here's what to do. Without negating the need for both, that is the gathering and the scattering, so without devaluing either, recognizing that both are critical and we're not the church without the gathering and we're not the church without the scattering. So recognizing the need for both and without negating that, I want you, I think the Holy Spirit wants you to discern your giftedness and passion and jump in. If that means stepping up to serve in a ministry here on the weekends, then bring this yellow sheet to me or find Sukrasan in the back of the room. If that means engaging your community, then start. You're going to know better than us how to do that. You don't have to make it weird. Just give it a go and the Spirit will lead as we proceed. So let me pray for us and then we'll get out of here. Father God, I pray that you would move in our lives and hearts. I pray that in the night when we talk a lot about history and and how the world's changing at a big level and and how the church is responding all over the place, that we would be able to discern in our own tiny little corner of the kingdom how to move forward. For those that you're leading and compelling to serve in a ministry here on the weekends, I pray, God, that you would empower them to do that. I pray that you remove the fear and hesitation. I pray that you remove the doubt and you would enable them to just have the courage to jump in. For others who maybe you're calling them to both or maybe there are people who you're not calling at all to engage here or certainly not anymore, but rather to think about how they might engage in their workplaces, their neighborhoods, among their groups of friends, in the airplane community, wherever their community they're part of. I pray, God, that you would bless them, give them courage, give them wisdom, and enable us to do what we can to encourage and resource them to be the kingdom in places where we ourselves will never go. We're grateful for tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.